Well, good morning and welcome to Liberty Lake Church. We there's a tiny change up here on stage. Travis has a cold. And Travis, if you're watching, I'm sorry. I think Junie gave it to you. So, <laughs> but if y'all want to stand with us and we'll get started with worship. Take a seat, and Don, you have announcements. Good morning. My name is Don Anderson, and uh, well, I, oh, I, I'm a humble volunteer here at the church and a member. How's that? No fancy titles, just a servant of the Lord. Announcements. Fireside room is open. Everybody looks puzzled. Do you know where the fireside room is? Right below us. Beautiful room. Yeah, we had some volunteers in the church led by our skilled leader, Alan, 
and we remodeled it, and it's clean, and the potties are clean, and it's bright, and et cetera, et cetera. No youth group tonight. Ladies' craft night. Yay! <laughs> it's for ladies. They're having snacks, but it's for ladies. Family prayer night is Tuesday night. And uh, I'm going to invite Steve Mean up. Um, and he can talk to you a little bit about the family prayer night. Thanks. Hey, well, if the clean potties are downstairs, where are the dirty potties? That's what I want to know. Okay, they're up here. Okay, great. Anyway, I just wanted to invite you to one of my most favorite events um, of the month, and that's family prayer night. And we call it family prayer night is because it's like family. Just come as you are. Uh, you don't have to have anything fancy prepared. Uh, you don't even have to talk. Sometimes, you know, like family, you just you get home and you just want to be quiet and rest. And so if that's where you're at right now, come and rest uh, with others at his feet. Um, so it's back in the foyer. It's this Tuesday at 5.30. Um, it's wonderful. It's one of my, like I say, it's one of my favorite times. And I think it's more relevant than, than lots of other times because if you look at what's all going on in the world, we have some elections, we have this thing called COVID, we've got Halloween coming, and we're preparing for communion coming up next week. All these things, what do they do? Call us to the Father. And like family, if we're talking more, the more we're connected. So we're connected to the Father and we're connected to each other. So please come. Like I say, it's a great time. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Thank you, Steve. Turkey fry. Yay! <laughs> Yay. <laughs> okay, we're going to follow the state guidelines for cooking, preparing, uh, serving, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that everybody can feel safe. So we'd love it if you'd show up. <clears throat> Make sure and contact Julie at the church office to know how to do some of that and when to drop off uh, donated turkeys. So make sure you contact Julie. And I found a great announcement. Following Steve Mean, these are weird times. Elections, who's going to be in office, what are we doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I was up early this morning, and I was reading through my Bible, and I found this. But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others the night and day difference he made in you, from nothing to something from rejected to accepted. Friends, this world is not our home. So don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live exemplary lives among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and their and they will be more willing to join in the celebration when he arrives. Make the master proud of you by being good citizens, 
Respect authorities, whatever their level is. They are God's emissaries for keeping order. It is God, God's will, that by doing good, you might cure the ignorance of the fools who think you're a danger to society. Exercise your freedom by serving God, not by breaking rules. Treat everyone you meet with dignity. Love your spiritual family. Revere God. Respect the government. That, to me, is an encouragement. We got a job to do, and it's share the gospel. Haley, you're up next. By the way, that was uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. <laughs> Hi there. Um, my name is Haley Siddons. My husband, Joe, and I have been coming here for almost two years. And in fact, a year and a half ago, Shane married us. So this place is pretty special to us. Um, I am a teacher for the Mead School District. So we're that crazy school district that is open uh, full time for in-person instruction. Um, we've just made a lot of changes for how that instruction looks, um, but good news, uh, it's been very successful. Uh, we have not had a single case transferred at school, um, so that's a lot of answered prayers um, in just keeping kids healthy but still getting them in the schools. Um, I am a PE teacher this year for Creekside Elementary, which is brand new, and they this uh, school was built to provide for this population north of Hilliard that uh, has very high poverty levels. So we work with students who are not just dealing with the obstacles of coronavirus, but also the obstacles of day-to-day -day life um, that has just been dealt to them. And I've found that there's a need in that school that I never would have expected. And that need is up on the screen, it's tennis shoes. And um, I think it sounds a bit insignificant for adults, um, just PE shoes, how, how much of an impact could that be for a child? But if I could just paint a picture of what PE means for these kids this year. Um, they have gone about seven to eight months without you know, social interaction, without physical exertion. It's very, very obvious. <laughs> They've gone so long without physical exertion. And um, just all out play, games, that stuff that is so important for child development. And so in school, they're chained to their desk. They eat their lunch at their desk. When they're out at recess, it's extremely structured. It's not unstructured play like they normally have. But when they walk into that gym, um, we've worked very hard and gotten very creative <laughs> to create these games and these activities where they do get that unstructured playtime that's so important for them while st still keeping them safe um, and distance and not sweating and breathing on each other. Um, and even though it looks different in the gym this year, it feels the same. It feels like kids finally playing again, and it feels like kids that um, are appreciating play like they never have before. And so um, I have these students, a handful of students who cannot afford to have PE shoes like the other students in the school, or if they do have PE shoes, it's um, hand-me-downs that are so big they're just tripping over them or so small or falling apart that they don't actually work as PE shoes. Um, in fact, I had a first grader who was like in tears because of like the amount she was tripping over her shoes and she couldn't understand why she couldn't, you know, do the activity with us. Um, and so I made her take off her shoes <laughs> and just be in her socks for the day, but that's not a long-term solution. So it was on my heart that I might be able to get these kids some PE shoes. And so I contacted Julie and Shane and said, do you think this is something we could put together? 
So if it is on your heart to donate PE shoes to these kids, it would make their year for sure a very hard year a lot easier it would make this time this magical time in PE without any worry or anxiety because they wouldn't have to feel like they were being left out or not able to participate in this fun that they totally deserve um, and I think it would kick off the whole year of the whole season of giving and being thankful because it would give them something to be thankful for so if you are interested um, you can email Julie oh yeah yeah, so if, if you're interested, you can email Julie. I'm still getting all of the information because I do have to contact families to make sure they're okay with it. And I will get you the, act the gender, the specific gender and the specific shoe size that we do need for each student. I wanna make sure nobody's left out, so it's taking me some time because I see like 200 students in a day, so it's hard to track. Um, but I will get the information to Julie and she can get the information to you and we can work on getting these kids those PE shoes and just kind of have an impactful moment where they feel some love and provision. So, yeah, that's my spiel. Okay, <laughs> I don't know who I hand this back to. Is it done? Back. <laughs> sure. All right, well, if you want to stand and join with us. to wonder, Lord, 
there's hope for the hopeless and all those who've strayed come sit at the table come taste the grace there's rest for the Kids, you're dismissed. Hey, guys. We'll see you guys later.
Isn't that priceless? Uh, hey, I want to correct something. I don't know if some of you probably noticed it. Um, last week I kept talking about Hezekiah. Uh, the book in the Bible is Nehemiah. So um, I was going to get up and be like, ah, some of you passed the test, but that'd be a lie, so I'm not going to do that. I was really struggling reading last week. I had one of those goofy moments where my glasses weren't behaving and had a goofy headache, all kinds of weird stuff. So let's see how this week goes. All right. So I was, uh, I don't know how many of you guys uh, really want uh, security in your life. Yeah, right? Many of us, at some level, uh, that's a lot of what we're looking for in life is some kind of peace, some level of security where we can go, life's good, right? Uh, many of us. And I think, you know, we do that from it, it different ways. Uh, my bride and I, we had uh, this wonderful house that we lived in up in Enius Valley. It was, this, it was this 19, somewhere around 1900 was when they built it. At least that's when it was registered. So it was probably built a little bit before that. Um, it had a it had a wood cook stove in it that was they actually had records it was hauled over on a potato wagon out of Idaho across the mountains and brought in this huge uh, wood stove it actually made the newspaper like it was such a big deal coming through town they actually had an article written about this stove that was brought out of Idaho for this anyway it was just nuts um, but it was this unique house that uh, during part of our time there uh, the septic system died. And so it, it, that, in that particular place, uh, the, the uh, landlord that we were renting from, he came out and he inspected it, and they said, yep, the, the drain field is dead, uh, and since we're going into winter, there's no way I can get anybody out here to deal with it uh, before then because they have to get, uh, it, it, it was crazy, we're on a 1,200-acre ranch, and they had to bring out inspections and dig new perk holes to, to put down the new drain field for Washington State drain field codes. And the first couple of them failed uh, because on this 1,200-acre ranch up on the side of a mountain, uh, it drained too fast, and we were going to pollute somebody else's water. We were on 12, or yeah, it was 1,200 acres. Anyway, um, that's not the point of the story. Uh, point was, so we're going into winter, and we don't have showers. We don't have toilets. There was this old outhouse that they used to use there that was, I would have had to have repaired. Um, and so we spent the first couple months scooping it out the, the septic tank, you know, to keep it at, at a level that we could continue to use so we could have showers inside in the warm. Uh, and then by the end of the winter, I had uh, developed a, a pump system that we'd put in there and pump it out into one of the holes that drained too quickly, the perk holes that they left all winter open. And... Uh, it was awesome. Can you guys imagine the level of security that my bride had in her home at that point in time with four children living in the house, doing the laundry that we were doing and the walk? It was nuts. And man, we had to really wrestle with our heart about God's provision, God's sovereignty in our lives at that moment. Now, I realize many of you have much more traumatic life stories um, than that. And yet, uh, 
I think to myself as, as I'm wrestling with this passage and as we engage in this passage, I, I really didn't see where, where it was taking us right away. It was early in the week that I began to notice that there was three key things that were happening in this particular text um, that we read last week that each one of them could take an entire, um, we could take a whole week to talk about just those specific points. But we're not going to do that today. Hopefully we're going to we're gonna have a bit of a, a broader view. But my, my heart in this this morning is to encourage us in our view of who God is. And I think it's part of why Mark wrote the text the way he did. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 12. And I want you to notice a couple of key things. I want you to look for uh, just some of the unique things that are going to be in this text um, that Jesus talks about um, in light of maybe his so- God's sovereignty and, and, and who he is and how Jesus is trusting uh, the Father in the midst of all of this stuff. Uh, so follow along with me in Mark chapter 14, and, and hopefully as we finish today, you will see um, what was so encouraging to me this week. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there uh, there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful. And to say to, to, to him, uh, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes at his, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for, for that man if he had not been born. We're going to look at three key things today. Um, and I'm hoping, as it was for me, that this is a great encouragement to you, in, especially in the context of our lives where we're at today and, and just where, where we're at in, in the culture. Um, and so remember, as we go through this process, remember that Jesus is moving on his path towards the cross. The disciples can't possibly know that that's what's coming at this point, uh, although Jesus has been telling them they're not getting it. They're, they're, they're not receiving that information. They're not understanding what he's trying to teach them yet. But we have that privilege of knowing the end of the story, so as we wrestle with this, we get to uh, apply that knowledge. The first thing that we see, and it's very interesting, is that God, you'll notice if you have my notes, I don't know how many of you have the notes, but if you get them, I've done a little repetition in the process. Point number one, God is sovereign. Jesus is fully aware of his path. He's fully aware of what's coming and where he's going. He's specifically set out. Now, whether or not Jesus planned ahead and had somebody else prepare him a guest room and did all that, I don't know. It doesn't tell us what he did in that, in that moment. However, if you go back to Mark chapter 11, you actually see him doing something similar in the presentation of themselves 
uh, at the, at the uh, triumphal entry, right? When they enter into Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus did back in Mark chapter 11. Follow along there with me, if you would. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. It says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. A little peculiar, right? Go in, see the colt, make sure nobody's ridden on it, and take it. Jesus specifically gives them the details. If someone asks you what you're doing, let them know that the Lord needs it. Doesn't that normally work when somebody's taking one of your animals? Oh, the Lord needed it. That's why you needed to borrow my car this weekend. Right? The reality, this is, this is obviously not, uh, unless he was planning out that far, unless he's like this master administrator who sets up somebody there to ask him what's going on so that he can prove that he knows what he's going on. You see where I'm going? That's pretty amazing that, that Jesus does that. And here he's entering in for the Passover and he does the same things. He sends two disciples in to find a specific person that's doing a specific task that leads to a specific place that has a specific room that's set up for a specific meal. Now we know they're coming in for the Passover and that's all true. But for Jesus to know the place and to know what's happening, either it was a, an issue of supernatural knowledge that he had or he's the greatest administrator of all time, which is probably both, right? We have some indication that he actually knew about what was coming, even before it happened, right? We know that he knew Jesus, Judas would actually betray him. In John chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 10, Jesus specifically talks to the disciples about this issue, and, and we pick it up in John chapter 13, verse 10. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not, oh, sorry, I should back up. This is where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. Peter's saying, wash all of me. If, if, if you're going to do it, I want more of it, um, which that's a whole another topic we won't get into today. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but, it is, com- but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean, are, are clean. Jesus knew who the betrayer was, even when he called him. Jesus knew it in advance. So God is sovereign in, in the fact that Jesus knew, it was fully aware of his path. The sovereignty of God was involved, and Jesus willingly obeyed, knowing what was coming, and knowing what he was going to suffer, he willingly obeyed. That at some level, should cause us to, uh, to have some uh, a level of awe in Jesus' relationship, in his knowledge, uh, with God's purposes and will on this earth for you and for me. 
When Jesus talks about his love for us, when Jesus talks about how he interacts with mankind, the lost, and, and even his own children, his own, his own uh, uh, brothers and sisters that he's dying for on the cross as their king and as their Messiah, we can have a greater peace in knowing that that's who this is because Jesus willingly walked this path knowing what was coming, and yet he still died for you and me. He still took the pain and the suffering and the experiences of that life and fulfilled the will of the Father. So when he says, love one another as I've loved you, he does it from experience. When he says, obey the Father, he does it from experience. When Hebrews says that he understands every temptation that is known to man, we can see that in his life because he exercised and lived through that. And so we have, as Hebrews tells us, a sympathetic high priest, one that, who understands our weaknesses, who understands the challenges of our life. Point number two is God is sovereign. You see a pattern? The pain in our lives can be used for his glory. Don't you guys love that? That, that, that statement, the pain in your life can be used for God's glory. Yay. Many of us would like to be, let me help you glorify God then. Okay, that's a joke, right? You're offering to help them experience pain so that they can glorify God. Thank you. A couple of you caught on with that. What's the incredible part of this text is what Jesus says as he, as he continues to talk about what's happening and he's expressing or he's calling out the disciples in verse 17. Um, and he says that one of you will betray me. And I love the response. They're all going around the, the table going, is it me? Can you imagine that meal? Uh, Lord, is it me? In the midst of this relationship, they had no idea who the betrayer was. They did not know. And we talked about that, I think, a couple of weeks ago, just the amazing way that Jesus loved and cared for them. They were not aware of who the betrayer was, and Jesus specifically points it out. What's incredible is that he actually uses a psalm in verse 20. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, we actually know, and we'll look at this other, another passage that specifically takes this quote, but I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 41. This part was a little bit, uh, it was good, it was encouraging, and at the same time, it's kind of like, ah, oh, man, Lord, I, I know that you can do this. I don't always like that you do this. In Psalm uh, 41, starting in verse 8, we see David speaking, and he says this, Psalm 41, verse 8. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Here David is expressing the reality of pain in his own life, right? The experience that he had in his own life where he's betrayed by a friend and his enemies who are attempting to deal out something that they would, would think would be deadly and would, that he would not return from, he would not rise again uh, in his kingdom. In fact, we know in his story, even one of his own sons betrays him. And probably no greater betrayal than when it's somebody inside of your closest knit group. There's no deeper wound than when a friend is the one 
who betrays you. And I love this psalm because at the end of it, in verse 10, the, 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 David expresses his dependence on the Lord when he says, But you, O God, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. He has this passionate trust in the Lord. And I love how David does it. He, he has this way of, uh, of talking about them suffering the grief that he would like them to suffer, and it still seems spiritual, right? You, you saw that in there. Let's just all admit, we can, we're like, yes! The crazy part is, is that Jesus actually takes this psalm, and he says this was written about me. John chapter 13, verse 18. Account, recalling uh, the same story, actually, he's talking about uh, the, the, the one who is betraying him specifically, and I'm, we're only going to grab the one verse here. John chapter 13, verse 18 says this, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's a specific quote of that psalm. So what do you do with that? When we start thinking about the sovereignty of God, what, what is so amazing about this is that David lived that real life pain. That was a true experience in David's life. There is no getting around it. He was, he was suffered from being attacked by his enemies. He suffered from internal betrayal, somebody very close to him that betrayed him. And he experienced the sovereign hand of God raising him up, restoring him. And yet Jesus is saying that this scripture was written about me. So you can literally say that the suffering in your life with a sovereign God can be used for his glory. There's many more illustrations to that. We don't have time to go over them. But i got to be honest with you guys. I don't know that we're always going to see that reality. David didn't see the reality of Christ. He did see God show up in the midst of his life, and he experienced great pain and great joy. And there's many others who have. I've told you guys this story, and it just reminds me when I, when I talk about um, this kind of stuff, the sovereignty of God using the pain of others for his glory. I, I, I remember so vividly my interaction with Tim Van Dyke's bride. Um, Tim Van Dyke was my missions trip leader who took me down to South America, Columbia, and he was captured by guerrillas and killed um, shortly within the year of him being captured. Um, and I was finishing up Bible school, and I was so angry at the Lord because I thought to myself, how could you leave me on this earth, a kid that is angry, has a problem with authority, who's struggling with sin, who really doesn't want to do what you want me to do, and you take out a man who has four kids, who has a flourishing ministry, who's actually in the mission field doing the good work of the Lord. You leave me on the earth, but you take him home. I don't get it. And it was his bride who grabbed me in one of our meetings when I, was, when I met with her. It was, she was on, uh, actually coming through our school on her way back to her family. And we sat down, and, and she challenged me not to waste my time with, with her husband. Don't neglect what I learned from Tim by wasting my life being angry with the Lord, but go and live what I saw from him. Go and live as if I learned about the, his love for Jesus from him and let that reflect in my life. When Tim died, 
and Tim went through all of those things, I would be willing to bet you at no point did this scrawny little kid out of Washington State who was, who was struggling in life to figure out what it meant to follow the Lord crossed his mind. When he was trudging through the jungles of South America without his back pain medicine, with it, in the midst of all of that insecurity, at no point did Shane Freeze cross his mind, I'm guessing. His love for the Father did, though. His faithfulness in believing that Jesus and God the Father are sovereign and that the pain of his life can be used for their, for, for their glory, for God's glory. I'm positive that that was in his heart. Because he spoke of those things on the mission field when he was encouraging us as young Bible school students and, and, and wannabe missionaries. Really, the question, as we look at who God is, isn't whether or not God's sovereign. It's whether we believe He's sovereign or not. That's really the question in this. It's whether or not when you and I see the pain in our lives, we can actually acknowledge that He's sovereign and that we can trust Him and that we can worship Him. Point three, God is sovereign. I'm not sure if you're seeing the pattern here. There is judgment for the lives that we live. There is judgment for our lives. Uh, Jesus specifically says uh, it would be better if he had not been born than to have been the one to betray the Lord. Right? Look, I love this. It's back in Ezekiel. I checked that book exists. Ezekiel chapter 18. Verse 21, I love, you know why I love this passage specifically? Because it's Old Testament. But when you hear the text, you're going to be like, that sounds like a New Testament teaching of Jesus. Where did this come from? Watch what this says, uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous person turns away, from his righteousness, and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered, for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Even in Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, God the Father was saying, but based on how people live, there will be judgment according to that. If a wicked person changes his way, turns from his sin, and follows my statutes and, and follows me, then he will be forgiven. If a righteous person turns from the righteousness that he knows to do to follow wickedness, he will surely die. Well, we do have a New Testament uh, uh, reference to that in Romans chapter 2. You're all like, Romans, that's wonderful. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says this very clearly. 
He will render, render to each one according to his works. To those who by patient and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human, uh, every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The amazing part of this, right, you guys, is that we have this, this issue. Let's, let's just acknowledge we have this tension that uh, it says in the text that Judas is doing this to fulfill Scripture. He's prophesied to be doing this, okay? And so in some schools of thought, people would take that to mean that he's predestined to do it. He has no choice to do it. In fact, there are some, there are some who explain in religious terms that, that Judas really had no choice. It was by design. And there's arguments that people would come back to say, well, then how can God be just in judging him in that reality? Now, I, without getting too goofy in my head, I, I, I want to try and explain what I think is happening here. And it's it really, really incredible to me uh, because I think it, it's part of how we come to see um, picture of the majesty of God. So let's just imagine for a minute that, that you and I aren't stuck on this, this timeline, right? You didn't, you didn't have your alarm go off this morning and get up and make your coffee or your tea or whatever other poison you use to get up in the morning. You didn't go through that. You can actually see yesterday. You, you're actually present Five years ago, isn't that funny that some of us, somebody asked me the other day, does it just seem like yesterday that you had four teenage boys in the house? I don't like to remember that one. I like earlier back when they were pleasant, cute little ones. I like that day. But yes, it does. It seems like just the other day, it's, it's such a short period of time ago. Imagine, if you would with me for a minute, that God is not actually trapped in the time frame that we are. He's outside of time, and he's actually able to see, as the Bible says, from the beginning from the end. He can see the whole thing. He's present at all times, in all places, ultimately, infinitely. Would it not be easy for that God to say, hey, this guy's going to make a bad decision here. I know that. I see it. I'm there with him. And then have Scripture written and the prophecy fulfilled and everything lined up because he sits outside of time. He's not trapped in our small perspective. Only a sovereign God could actually take uh, the, the fabric of mankind and weave into that his will his purposes, his outcome, with our poor decision-making proclivity. That's the big word. Do I get anything extra for big words? We haven't talked about that. Have you guys ever wrestled with that? How is it that God actually has us accountable for our sin, and yet he knows what's going to happen? 
It's absolutely in Jesus, and he does it. I believe that's part of his sovereignty is that because he can see all of these things, because he's outside of time, he's able to know the future, he's able to know the past, and he's able to line all of those things up so that he can say it was written, and therefore Judas is going to fulfill what was written about what's coming, and yet he's still going to be held accountable for it because he's choosing to sin in his own life at that moment. And we'd like to explain it, I think, sometimes a little, sim- a little more simply than that. But I am really wrestling with how. How do you explain an infinite God? How do you explain this in human terms? I feel like I'm failing in that at most of the time. So we have these three things. One... Jesus seems to understand. He's fully aware of his path. He knows what's coming. He knows he's going to be trained. He knows what's what's happening in the 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 the, the coming process of his crucifixion. Right. We we can even see that when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, "Lord, let this cup pass. Not my will, but your will be done." We watch what's happening in the sovereignty of God. That He's using the pain, the real tangible pain of David's life to set for himself a confirmation of his coming son, the coming Messiah. And he says, it was written about me, this prophecy is in place, and it actually paints the picture of his personal betrayal that happens at the hand of Judas on the night that he was betrayed as they were doing the Passover meal. And then we have a picture of the sovereignty of God in this idea that he's, he's able to actually write the history and, and, and the future all at the same time while men are still held accountable for their actions and held accountable for their sin. And, and only a sovereign God is capable of doing that. That's the picture that we see of God here in the text. And I believe that's part of what Mark was trying to get across as, as Peter was explaining this to, the, uh, to Mark as he wrote the text. Because imagine how completely chaotic it had to have been by the end of that evening for them. Imagine the chaos that is going to ensue for the disciples as Jesus is betrayed and he's turned over to the high priests and they're guards, and he's beaten, and, and the guys all scatter. And, the, and the, I don't think that there's probably a more painful moment in the history of the disciples' relationship than the fact that each one of them actually leaves Jesus and denies him. Peter specifically. But all of them ran away. At one point. It's that God that says specifically in our text this morning that it was written. Right? Verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. He specifically references the prophecy. Point four this morning is that God is sovereign. And we can rejoice because we are secure in that God, in a supernatural God who is outside of time, who's capable of, of, of being present always and accomplishing His glory and His will for the redemption of mankind. That God 
is a God that we can trust, that we can find hope and security. And look, just a couple of passages in chapter Luke, <clears throat> Luke chapter twenty-four, uh, verses twenty-five uh, through twenty-seven says this. This is on the. Um, this is after his resurrection. He's on the road to Emmaus with several of the disciples. Verse twenty-five. He says this, and he said to them, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them." in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And he continues, and another, just shortly down the road from that, in verse 44, to speak to his disciples, and he says this, And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus is reminding his disciples that, that this, all of these things, all of this stuff, everything that happened to him was, was written about. It was foreknown by his Father. It was all part of the plan to bring redemption to a people, to a sinful people. Many of whom were rejecting him and were rejecting the gift, much like our nation today, and I believe every, if, you, if we go back and look at the Old Testament, you guys, look at how often you have one good king, one good judge, and then the nation just spins out of control and goes and starts running after idols and, and idolatry and foreign worship. They constantly are doing that all the time. And ultimately, I do not believe we are any better. Our idols may be a little bit more polished and maybe a little bit more expensive, maybe a little harder to notice because they're necessary for different pieces of our lives. It's not, it's not like we go out and carve an animal and set it on our, man, on our mantle in our house and come in and pray to it every day. But the idols that we have in our heart, the things that replace our trust and our hope and our security in God the Father are many probably more invasive and deceptive um, than, than what we are even willing to acknowledge. But here's the hope that we have. I love this because Paul speaks specifically to this idea of what the Father, the promise that the Father was sending his disciples, the, the comforter. Jesus was referencing the Holy Spirit. Then turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, guarantee, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. I love, uh, especially this first chapter in Ephesians, it's just one of the great pictures of the gospel, but you see in there, Paul himself even references the, this idea that God has predestined us before time. He's established the outcome that would be in, in place for those who choose to follow Christ. And it's the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. My bride probably gets tired of me every now and then. I listen to some of our Christian music as we drive in. And I don't know you guys ever, I get tired of it, and I know I probably shouldn't. But there's some songs that talk about, you know, we want more Holy Spirit. We want more of this, more of that. You, you, if you're a child of God, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You got Him. Deals, it's good, done, sealed, promised, over. What more do you want? You got God living in you. If there's a problem with the outflow of what the Holy Spirit's doing in there, it's not His problem. It's us. It probably means that we're, we're not living the way that we've seen that we should. We, we're, we're probably having the experience of less of the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians. We looked at the, the, the fruit of the flesh last week in Galatians chapter 5. Well, right after that, if you follow the, the fruit of the flesh through, you actually see the fruit of the Spirit show up. The evidence of the Spirit in us, according to Paul, has less to do with the spectacular and more to do with transformation of heart. But our hope is in a God who is sovereign. What do you have to fear this week? Brothers and sisters, what do you have to fear this week? Nothing! Nothing! If the God that we're serving, if the God who is sealed us, if the God of Ephesians chapter 1 is the same God who prophesied in generations before about the coming, His Son coming, suffering, dying, and being raised from the dead, if that's the same God of Ephesians chapter 1 that you and I call Father, that we call Messiah, then what do we have to fear? A God who is outside of time that can plan things from the creation to the end and has all of that stuff worked out and even says, I know all the hairs on your head. He knows us that well. What fear do we have? None. Who is it that you know God to be? And are you really living that way? The question is, are we going to live that way? We can talk about it. We can speak of it. But what does it look like when life doesn't go the way we want it to? What does it look like when things like what happened to King David happen to us? When we're betrayed? When the enemy attacks? 
when we have nothing left but to cry out to the Lord and say, God, if you don't show up, I don't have anything. Our hope is in Christ alone. It's not politics. It's not finance. It's not even having a nice church where we get along with everybody. Wouldn't that be cool? (laughs) If we were like all really nice people and it was just easy. Wouldn't that be amazing? But our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in a sovereign God who sees the beginning from the end. And he says that if you're my child, you're sealed, secure. So let's live like God is sovereign this week and rejoice with peace. Because we have that privilege. We have that reality. We have that hope. Pray with me. Father, thank you. God, thank you for all that you are doing. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, the hope that we have in you. Lord, I confess that there are moments where I don't trust you as the sovereign God. There are moments where I think to my, in my own head, in my own heart, that I've got it under control. I've got it figured out. And then the, the worst part is, is that when I realize I don't, instead of falling on my face before you immediately, I tend to fret. I become anxious and I worry. And God, I know that 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 doesn't honor you because what does that gain me? Uh, Not anything. So Father, I pray that as we consider that this week, as we consider going into an an election week, as we have uh, medical issues and we have cultural issues, uh, we even have personal issues. We have brothers and sisters in our church who are struggling, even with their health right this morning. Lord, we need to have our eyes on you. I pray, Father, that you would help us to keep our eyes there. The, the song that we've been I was listening to, uh, Do What You Are Famous For, the, the, the challenge that, to my heart about that song is that if you look at the context as you know it, to, to, pray, to sing that song requires us to be okay with being put into the position of those men and women of the Old Testament that saw you in that. Because the context around all of those miracles was oftentimes great suffering and, and desperate need of you to show up. And so, Lord, when I, when I ask for you to do these things, I, in my own heart I recognize that it probably means things aren't going to be comfortable. Things aren't going to be easy. So, Father, I would ask that you would uh, give us the boldness as the disciples prayed for boldness when they were threatened. Pray that you would give give us boldness to stand on the truth. And, Lord, where we are lacking truth, would you put an ache in our hearts to seek you, to open your word and to know you as our Lord and Savior. May you be glorified in the worship of your people this week, Lord. Overwhelm us with your presence and the knowledge of who you are through your word and and, and through our time in prayer. And I pray this week as we have opportunity to come and, and be gathered together as a family to pray. Lord, that's the posture that we should take together. I pray that you would bring us together to pray. 
bring us together, Lord, for the, for the sake of these kids that need shoes, simple things that we would take for granted possibly. Help us to be a light for the gospel in this community and help us to be just to overflow with, with the love and hope and joy that comes from being children of God, secure in who you are. May you be glorified, Lord, in your name. Amen. Now join with us for our last song.
us go out in this week remembering that he is ours and we are his and we don't have anything to fear even though we can come up with a lot of things in our head <laughs> it's easy to do but we don't have to so go out <laughs>